Good morning. Did everybody have a good Christmas? Yes. Well, a couple of announcements. Just so happens that uh, anybody familiar with the Vibrant Life magazine? Well, the January, February 2014 issue, which is uh, the, the very uh, current issue just came out, has an article in there uh, called Fighting Your Fears, written by me. And, yes, and, uh, and an advertisement for our books. So if you want some of these to put in hands of people who, um, you know, maybe want a little more orthodox literature, <laughs> um, we have a thousand of these here. Take a stack and just, you know, share them and hand them out and put them in the back of the church for people to, to use if they'd like. Alrighty, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. Send your spirit to join us, enlighten our minds, fill our hearts with your love, and uh, be with our families and the members that can't be here today, that you'll watch over and keep them and, and bless them, we pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number two in the quarterly uh, discipleship, and the title this week is Discipling Through Metaphor. And the first paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says, Christianity is re- first sentence of the, of the lesson. Christianity is reasonable and logical. I love that. Intellect should be cultivated. Intellect alone, however, insufficiently expresses the complete human personality. Unlike robots, which are programmed to process reason and logic, humans are capable of loving, feeling, hurting, crying, caring, laughing, and imagining. Thus, Jesus framed eternal truths in ways that went beyond mere intellect alone. Jesus spoke through concrete pictures drawn from everyday life in order to reach people where they were. Um, do you love this idea? Christianity is reasonable, logical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at least it's supposed to be, right? Yes. Is it always presented that way? No. This week, uh, I was reading online an online discussion where some people were discussing the different models of uh, of atonement, well, penal model versus what we teach, and things were in this online discussion. And one person put down this metaphor. We're talking about metaphors, learning through metaphor, discipling through metaphor. They put this metaphor online in that discussion. Jesus is knocking at the door of a person's heart saying, let me in. The person's asked, why? Jesus responds, so I can save you. From what, the man asks, Jesus replies, from what I will do to you if you don't let me in. (laughs) You know, I think that's a pretty good, accurate representation of penal substitution theology. Love me, or if you don't, I'll be forced by justice to torture and kill you. Is that logical? Is that presentation logical and reasonable? It has a a little bit of truth in it. Yeah, what, what truth would you hear in that? Well, you will be destroyed if you don't go my way. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll be destroyed. It would be the same thing if a doctor says, hey, you know what, you know, you, you've got smallpox or anthrax, you're infected with anthrax, let me in. Why? So I can save you because I've got ciprofloxacin and I can save you with this antibiotic. Is that the same thing as let me in because if you don't, I'll kill you? No. See, there is a difference, isn't there? Yeah, you'll die if you don't let me in, because I've got a remedy that's going to cure you. But it's not the same thing, let me in, but save me from what? From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in. These are two different things. And where do we put the onus of destruction? On sin and deviation from God's law, which destroys those who are out of harmony with it? Or on God, who becomes the cosmic um, uh, executioner and uses his power to torture and kill? Where do we put the, the onus of, of the pain and the suffering? You see, that's the question. Um, well, we're, I think the lesson's going to unfold that as we go through today. Yeah. Yes. Or could it be, what, what was the word that you used to start this? Not analogy. Uh, uh, metaphor? Metaphor. Or 
Could it be the metaphor that the doctor has the disease, the, the, the chemical that will kill sure. that smallpox virus, and he says, I am going to destroy that virus. The virus, yes. yes. Yeah, I, I like that very much. I think that's exactly what God is out to destroy. He's out to destroy sin. And, and, and sin at its root has two, two primary elements that don't come from God. What are those two primary elements that actually originate with Satan? Selfishness. And what is it that destroys selfishness? Love. Love. And the other one, Satan is the father of? Lies. lies. What is it that destroys lies? <laughs> truth. God is the source of truth and love. So truth and love unveiled, un, unrestrained, destroys lies and selfishness. And when the spirit fell, the spirit of truth and love, they saw tongues of fire. This, this, this fire of God's presence, I believe, is this unveiled glory of un, unveiled, unrestricted truth and love, which burns through and destroys the lies and selfishness. Thus, you've heard things like, our God is a consuming fire. To sin, wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. Notice what it's consuming. Sin. sin. Yeah, exactly right. It's not out to destroy the people who are infected by sin. It's out to cleanse us from that. But if we don't come around to where our characters are characters that love truth and love others more than self, die to self, then we will be tormented by our own condition when we come face to face with the reality of who we are in his presence. It will be awful. That's, those are great points. Okay. Um, so other things that are maybe taught in Christianity or presented that sometimes are not logical and reasonable... How about the idea of the innocent being punished in place of the guilty and then calling it justice? Let's take an innocent person who's done no wrong, let's, let's punish them in place of the guilty and then call that justice. Does that sound reasonable, logical to anybody? Do you know that's what Christianity is teaching? Now, on the other hand, if you have the other model of understanding God's law, is it reasonable and logical for a person who loves somebody to donate a kidney to their loved one who's failing of kidney failure, dying of kidney failure? And they would suffer, and they would go through a great sacrifice to save them because the condition required it. So you can understand under a law that God built life to operate upon that it was necessary for Christ to become our substitute to do what was necessary to save us, but in no wise was it an innocent being punished for the guilt and the, and the vengeance and, and, the, and the legal justice required, requiring punishment be exacted upon an innocent. It was never the case. Second paragraph says, Meanwhile, complex concepts such as Justification, righteousness, and sanctification were easily grasped through the master storyteller's art. In other words, concepts that are often difficult to grasp in ordinary language can be taught through symbols and metaphors. Well, first question that came to my mind, do you find these ideas of justification, righteousness, and sanctification complex? Yes. I heard some yeses. Okay? And, and what do you think the source of their complexity is? That the idea and concept itself is complex, or that what is currently taught within Christianity about these topics is so convoluted, infected with false ideas, and inherently contradictory that it becomes confusing and complex. Well, I'm going to show you some evidence. We're going to go through a couple of ways of looking at this. Yes? I think the whole thing is complex. It will be their study for ages. Um, the initial principles can be easily understood. See, c complex, complex means to me difficult to understand. I don't think it's difficult to understand. But studying for ages means there's depths and perspectives and, and, and layers that continue to unfold 
but aren't difficult to understand. For instance, is it difficult to understand why it's important to brush your teeth? Is that difficult to understand? But for a two-year-old, is their understanding your understanding? Did their understanding evolve and develop? But still, it was simple to understand. So let's go through this. Let me, this is out of a, a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, describing Satan's method. I want you to s- see if you agree with this methodology used by the enemy. It's out of a Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41. Lucifer had artfully presented his side of the question, employing sophistry and fraud to secure his objects. His power to deceive was very great. By disguising himself in a cloak of falsehood, he had gained an advantage. All his acts were so clothed with mystery that it was difficult to disclose to the angels the true nature of his work. It was his policy to perplex with subtle arguments concerning the purposes of God. Everything that was simple, he shrouded in mystery, and by artful perversion cast doubt upon the plainest statements of Jehovah. And his high position, so closely connected with divine government, gave greater force to his representations. So what do you hear of the methods Satan used being described? What methodology is being used? Sophistry. What else? Deception. Lies. Increasing complexity. Making things seem mysterious. Perversion. Taking something that's true and twisting it or perverting it into a direction it wasn't intended. Um, would Satan abandon such tactics after being cast out of heaven or continue to use those same tactics? And how would such tactics be manifested today? Would Satan have his age? Notice that the last sentence of that was, and his position, high position, his high position so closely connected with the divine government gave greater force to his representations. Would he seek to have people in high position present his ideas and theories? such as theologians, pastors, and church leaders. High position with God's government is what was the the, the method here. And because he was in high position and closely connected with the divine government, would Satan seek to get people closely connected with God's government on earth, the church, to misrepresent God? Would he seek that? Now, let's be balanced. Gabriel, does he have a high position connected with God's government in heaven? And does he misrepresent God? Not at all. He presents the truth. So I'm not suggesting just because someone's in a high position, they are working to misrepresent God. I'm suggesting that Satan will seek to get people in those positions to misrepresent God. Satan promised Jesus all that. Yes. Yes, he absolutely did. And we can look at history. Was Annas and Caiaphas in position, high position in the church authority of the day 2,000 years ago? And what about during the Dark Ages? Were there people in high position in the church that were working to misrepresent God? Do you think that strategy, using people in high position in church organization, ended with the Dark Ages? Jesus said in Matthew 7.22, speaking of the end of time, when he comes again, time we live, I'm hoping, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Is Jesus telling us there will be people doing works in his name that are actually his enemy? Do we ever contemplate that possibility? I think 
the, the reason I'm presenting this to you is because you should never believe anything I say because I say it. I'm human. I make mistakes. I'm not right about everything. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to challenge you to think and investigate for yourself. Be like the Bereans. Investigate, study, reason. Come let us reason together that our sins like scarlet. It's your job to reason for yourself. I oppose those authorities and organizations that would come to you and say, hey, because of my position in the church, you should believe what I'm telling you. You see, there's a big problem. How about if the person, well, don't believe me. Believe because I'm quoting the red leather books. I'm quoting the scripture. I've got, a, I've got an apostle who said it. It must be true. Okay, so Peter comes to visit your church 2,000 years ago and tells you that good, good Christians shouldn't associate with the Gentiles and eat with them. He's an apostle. Who are we to question? Well, Paul, fortunately, was on the scene to tell him he was wrong, and he was. Would you have had the courage to say, wait a minute, I know God's methods. Jesus associated with prostitutes. Jesus associated with tax collectors. Jesus talked to the Samaritan who was not a Jew. Peter, you're wrong. Or would you say, he's the apostle, he's got the gift, I can't challenge that. We have surrendered our individuality to those who we deem being an authority over us. A third of the angels took that approach and were just duped by, by Lucifer. Don't surrender your thinking to me. Reclaim your individuality. Develop Hebrews 5.14. The mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. By practice. Or Paul says in Romans 14.5, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. In their own mind. This is being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that you cannot be shaken from it. Anybody know what that is called? The ceiling. The ceiling of the Holy Spirit being so settled, the only way you will be settled is for you to wrestle out the questions and answers for yourself. Think about doing math problems in school. Did you get settled on your, on your confidence in being able to work a problem by the teacher coming along and writing down the right answers next to everyone? Did you get settled because you worked the problems and figured out how they worked and were able to understand them, and then you were settled? Same thing is true with this problem that we're fighting in our controversy over God's character. You may know the right answer, but if you haven't wrestled it through for yourself, you're not settled. John the Baptist challenged the Pharisees. Yes, he did, didn't he? He did. John the Baptist said challenged the Pharisees. So back to the question about these ideas being complex. I'm going to suggest to you they're not inherently complex. They only appear complex because they've been presented in, with certain false premises upon which they are built. So let me, let me read to you how justification is traditionally taught. And this is from Wikipedia. So it's just a general source. It's not from any particular denomination, but I think it does an actually pretty good job of, of describing both Protestant and Catholic Orthodox um, views of justification. Justification in Christian theology is God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. In Protestantism, righteousness from God is viewed as being credited to the sinner's account through faith alone without works. This means of justification is an area of significant difference between Catholic slash Eastern Orthodox and Protestants. Broadly speaking, Catholic and Orthodox Christians distinguish between initial justification, which occurs, in their view, at baptism, and permanent justification accomplished after a lifetime of striving to do God's will. Most Protestants believe that justification is a singular act in which God declares an unrighteous individual to be righteous. Get your mind around what he's declaring. And this is true. I've talked to the professors up here. This is exactly what they present. 
It's, it's true in that they present it. I'm not saying this is the true view of justification, but this is true in what, what is commonly presented. Most Protestants believe that justification is the singular act in which God declares an unrighteous individual to be righteous, an act made possible because Christ was legally made sin while on the cross. Justification is granted to all who exercise faith, and that is viewed as a gift from God, unmerited favor, by Lutherans and Calvinists, who use Ephesians 2.8 as well as Acts 16 and Philippians 1.29 to support their beliefs. Catholics in Eastern Orthodox use James 2.14-16 and Galatians 5.19-21 and Matthew 19.17 to support their belief that justification is kept through avoiding grave sins. Justification is seen by Protestants, as being the theological fault line that divides Catholic and Protestants. Christ's death and resurrection, triumph over Satan and death, provide justification for believers before God. His righteousness becomes theirs, and his death becomes an offering to God in their place to pay all of their sins. According to Protestants, this justification is by faith alone, not through good deeds, and is a gift from God through Christ. According to Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, justification is free gift, but is gotten through baptism initially and through the sacrament of reconciliation if justification is lost through grave sin. Kind of sounds complex there, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. Why is it sounding so complex? I'm going to tell you why. It's actually very simple, but if, if you start... It's simple if you start from the bedrock of reality. The reality of God's nature, character, and the way he actually constructed his universe to operate. It becomes very straightforward and simple. But if we start on a false assumption regarding God's law, then it becomes convoluted. When we understand God's law as the design law, the protocols upon which construction is built to operate, or do we understand God's law like human law, a set of rules? imposed upon us, like our legislators put rules upon us, with no inherent consequence for breaking. Remember, Daniel prophesied that a little horn power would arise and seek to change God's law, which happened when Constantine converted. And the idea of God's law from the law of love is described in the New Testament by every New Testament writer. The design protocol of giving, of beneficent, upon which life is constructed to operate, was replaced with imperial Roman construct of law, God dictates a bunch of rules, and now the government must enforce those rules. And that's how Christianity changed the idea of God's law. Evidence for this change. What church committee ever got together and voted to change the law of gravity or the law of res- respiration? They don't change those laws in committee. Why? Because they understand they're building blocks upon which reality is constructed. They can't. So what would it mean if they got together and did vote to change God's law? That, pardon? That they don't see it as those that it, they see it. And so when they voted to change the commandments, it was a tacit acknowledgement or evidence that their idea of God's law is no longer construction protocols, but dictated rules. There's no reason other than God says do it, and because there's no reason, then the ruling authority is required to police breaches, and the ruling authority is required to inflict punishments. Daniel prophesied this would be the case, and of course this has been the case. So both Protestants and Catholic theologies have a God which must receive some form of payment from his son in order to legally pardon, assuage wrath, have sin penalty paid, expiate his vengeance, or justify us legally before God. The point of the argument between the two is not over God's character or law, which is the central issue in the controversy, but they don't argue that point. They both agree that God's law is a dictated set of rules and that God is, is a God of severe wrath and vengeance who must be appeased. Both Protestants and Catholics agree God requires payment, God inflicts suffering and death, God tortures, God must be paid by the blood of his son, 
and sin must be punished by God that God cannot forgive unless he receives something from humanity, in this case, the humanity of his son. The point of the argument is what? Protestants say only the blood of Jesus, which the believer accepts on faith justifies, or Catholics say the blood of Jesus plus the sacraments when we fall justifies. That's the point of their argument. Do you see how Satan is laughing at them both? Do you see how infected Christianity has been with this distortion? If you start upon the bedrock of truth, God's nature, character of love, and how he built things, and the designer, when he constructed his universe, built it to operate in harmony with his own nature, then deviations from that require the designer to heal and restore, lest death ensue. The Bible says, and then we'll look at this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God. And because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. That's the good news version. Some translations take the word accepted, and they'll translate it as credited. Others will say reckoned. Some will actually say declared. Declared him righteous. This is where this idea of By faith, God declares us righteous. The Strong's lexicon, this word accepted, declared, reckoned, accounted, is uh, logizomehi. That's Greek, and I can't speak it. But that's the Greek word. And, and, And it translates all these different ways, but what it actually means, and here's what it says in the lexicon. The word deals with reality. If I logizomehi, uh, or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. This word refers to facts, not suppositions. So what it's saying is that when you go to your checkbook and you reckon, well, I reckon so. You say, I reckon, I reckon it's got $25 in it. I account that I take an accounting of my checkbook and it's got $25. You can only reckon it that way if it actually has it. This is not what Christianity is teaching. Christianity is teaching that God declares or reckons us righteous even while we're unrighteous through the credited accounting of an accounting mechanism in the books of heaven where God looks at Christ's record applied to your record book in heaven. And so he declares you righteous even though you're not. Yes? If you look in Genesis um, 26 verse 5 regarding Abraham, it says that God blessed Abraham because he kept his commandments, his statutes, his laws, and his deeds. Interesting enough, where were those commandments, statutes, laws, and deeds recorded um, prior to Moses? In my opinion, it's because God wrote them on his heart, the natural law, as opposed to the list of commandments that we talk about. That's exactly right. So we come back to this idea of Abraham being recognized as righteous. How did this happen? Notice what happened first. It says Abraham trusted God or had faith in God. What is the natural state of the fallen human heart? in a trust relationship with God or enmity to God. Our natural state is at war with God, distrusting, self-centered, against him. That's our natural state. So when Abraham goes from this natural state of enmity to trusting God, he had a heart change. His heart was against God. Now his heart is trusting or with God. He has been set right in heart with God, justified, set right. That's why God recognized him as justified, because he, in fact, was justified. The heart change came first. The recognition of God was the reality of what had changed in Abraham's heart. 
This is the true gospel message, a real transformation of the inner man. That's why all the metaphors, talk about metaphors, reborn, recreated, regenerated, the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, having the mind of Christ, writing the law on the hearts and minds. All of these things are actual, trying to describe a real change inside the believer. But what happens when you take the false law construct, you get, mis- you get confused, and there's no change happening in us. What's happening is there's an accounting mechanism going on in heavenly accounting books, and that's where we're declared to be righteous. And I'm going to tell you, when I had the meeting up here with the professors, six of them, they looked me in the face and they said to my face, righteousness, uh, justification is when God declares you righteous even though you're not. And I said, so God's lying. No, 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 he's not lying because he's looking at the righteousness of Jesus who's accounted legally to your account. And so I said, but I'm still not righteous. No, you're not righteous. But God says I am. Yeah, that's what they say. That's contradicting the plain words of Scripture that God cannot lie. So you can see this is actually not complex. Think about it. This operates on the natural law of God's government. Truth displaces lies that cause us to distrust God. We see God for who he really is, as revealed in Christ. We trust him. We open our hearts. Our hearts are no longer afraid and alienated from him. We're actually reconciled to him. That's, our hearts are now set right with him. We're justified. It's very simple. It's not complex. Then we open the heart. The spirit is poured out. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become literally partakers of the divine nature We're regenerated in the inner man. Thus, when we are set right in heart, we're recognized as being right in our right relationship with him. That's righteous, right relationship with him. And then as in a trust relationship, the Holy Spirit comes and reproduces actual righteousness in us. Our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desire to renew to be like his desire. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered by the robe of his righteousness. Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. At one minute. At one minute, yes. Exactly right. But... When you hold the other view, it makes God into a liar. God declaring people righteous when they're not righteous. It creates a duplicity. God doesn't see our wickedness. He sees the righteousness of Christ, even though we're still wicked. Listen to this metaphor. You're sick with, with the black plague. Because you are sick, you're quarantined and judged to be in a terminal condition. Another word for that is diagnosed. You're diagnosed to be in a terminal condition. Unless the disease can be cured. A doctor is coming to examine your case. When he arrives, he picks up your chart. But before he does so, your older brother, who is perfectly healthy, has replaced your record with his physical exam findings, taking his name off and putting your name on the findings of of his exam. Now, when the doctor comes and examines the record, he declares you healthy, even though you're still terminal and dying. Note. In this metaphor, the doctor is either being deceived himself and doesn't know really what's going on. So we have Jesus pulling the wool over the father's eyes so the father doesn't really know how wicked we are. He thinks we're righteous, but we're really not. Or the doctor is declaring and colluding in this deception, declaring something to be true, which is untrue. The patient is still terminal and dying. If it wasn't bad enough in the penal theologies of, Christi- uh, of Christianity, the doctor is not only misrepresenting the facts, declaring things to be true that are not true, we're still terminal and dying, but in this model, they also have him requiring a, a steep payment in order to, to, to make this declaration. You pay me high enough, I'll make this false declaration. 
Give me the blood of my son and I'll declare them righteous even though they're not. If you get your mind around this representation, is it any wonder the the latter rain has not come? Is the Holy Spirit going to inspire us and empower us to lie about God this way? This is why the, the second angel and the third angel have not done their message because the first angel hasn't been presented properly. You know, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens in. Called back to worship the designer, the creator, the builder, the way he designed things to operate and represent him truthfully and stop representing him as a Roman dictator. Well, the word fear itself, doesn't that mean to reverence? Yeah, it, it, it certainly in English can mean two of things. And I think in, in, uh, in the first angel message, it means to awe and to reverence, not to be terrified or in dread of. And the reason we know that is because it says... Fear God and give glory to him. So those who are in fear are to glorify, meaning what? Represent his true nature in their, char- uh, in their character. It means they have character like Christ. And perfect love casts out all fear. So our perfect love for God isn't going to cast out our awe and admiration. But it will cast out our terror. So we're not to be terrified or dreading him. We're to be in awe, overwhelmed with his beauty. Just, just, just amazed with his glory. So that we want to represent him rightly, but we're not terrified anymore. And see, one of the tricks of the devil, when you have penal substitution theologies, people are actually more afraid of God who's trying to cure them than sin, which is destroying them. You think about it. How many people are actually afraid of sin? Afraid of gossiping. Afraid of pride. Afraid of arrogance. How many are afraid of God if they get caught doing it? (laughs) You see, where's the real fear? Satan has got us to be afraid of our Savior rather than the disease which is killing us. How about a simple metaphor where God gives us nourishment to our soul, just like a parent serves his children like he did the children of Israel in the desert? Exactly. Exactly. But will you take nurturance from someone? For instance, you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst, and somebody's offering you water, but you believe the water's got cyanide in it. Are you going to take it, even if you're dying of thirst? Probably not. You see, once, when, we, when we believe lies about God, that he's out to harm us, we actually want to be hidden from him. And how many of our, our, our doctrines are designed to actually separate us from God, not unite us? For instance, we're covered by the robe of righteousness. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees the robe of the Son instead that covers and hides us. Um, our sins go into beforehand to judgment. So God, uh, when, when, when judgment comes... Um, we have a defense attorney that stands between us and God and argues so God can't really get at us. He's protecting us from the Father. How many of our theologies are actually designed to separate us from God because we have this punitive view of God and God is terrifying and we need protection from him? Rather than the truth that Christ is the vehicle and means whereby we are reconciled and brought into that one, that I pray they will be one, as you are one and I are one. We're all brought into one mint. And Christ is the means whereby we're brought back into a unity with our Father in heaven. Yes, in the back. Yes. Proverbs defines uh, fearing God as hating evil. Oh, I like that too. Yeah. I like that too. So fear God. I like that very much. Thank you for sharing that. Fear God. Hate evil. How about hate these evil representations of God and give him glory? I like that even better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you realize that, that our church has a mission and Satan is terrified of our church fulfilling its mission of representing God this way? And therefore, he gets his people in positions of high authority in the God's government on earth 
in the churches of earth, and I don't mean just any specific denomination across the landscape of Christianity, to represent and argue these penal views. Could it be that some of these... uh, The trouble with a metaphor is a metaphor needs to have three legs. It's not a four-legged stool. In other words, a metaphor can't be carried to a... Sure. So, could it be that that a better metaphor could be a lawnmower. I think we should always be scared to death of putting our foot under a running lawnmower. Always. Always. But not be afraid of the lawnmower. I mean, just that... I've been so is God, is God the lawnmower in your metaphor? Let, let, me, let me finish. <laughs> so I've been overseas before where I've actually watched people mowing the lawn with scissors. Mm-hmm. They're squatting down, and I'm thinking... I could never do that. I wouldn't have the patience to do that. But if you got a lawnmower, I mean, it can make short work of mowing the lawn. So, yes, I was making the illustration not to be run to an illogical conclusion, but, but the word fear means both. It means fear, and we should always be afraid of letting our kids stick their hand under a running lawnmower. We should always be afraid of us doing it. There should always be that fear, not because the lawnmower has any evil intent. There's no evil intent. There's no intent at all from a lawnmower. That's right. And there's no evil intent with God to do any harm. His, 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 he wants everything to be nice and whatever. But the lawnmower does so much good, we've never, nobody, just because some kids have been hurt by a lawnmower doesn't mean that we've all gotten rid of our lawnmowers. So let's let's take your let's take your your example and let's see if we can't apply it and and see where those places where we can take it to are and where those places we shouldn't take it to are. Okay, um, the reason a kid shouldn't put his hand or any person shouldn't put their hand on the lawnmower is because there's laws of physics at work. That's right, natural law. If you deviate from those laws, then there's pain and suffering that comes. It's not an infliction. It's not an arbitrary punishment. If you stick your hand on a mower, you don't have to go to court and be tried and have a. It is an infliction, but it's no, not an no. arbitrary infliction. No, no, no. If you stick your hand in the mower, you don't have to go to court, have a judicial proceeding, have evidence presented, have a have a, have a judge preside over it, have a, a judgment made, and then have some arbitrary punishment put upon you for sticking your hand in the mower. You don't have to do that. Do you? No. No. Take care of Right. You have deviated. You have, you have deviated from the design upon which things were to function. The lawnmower is built to run on a certain design. When you breach the design, inherently the pain and suffering comes. It's not an infliction. Likewise, God has constructed his universe to operate on certain inherent laws or designs. You are free to breach them. If you do, then there is pain and suffering that comes to you from the breach, not from the builder of the lawnmower. You don't have to be afraid of John Deere Company when you put your hand in front of the lawnmower. They were not out to get you, not out to hurt you. But the, it was built to operate on certain laws of physics, if you will, certain design parameters. And if you break that law and break that design, you will suffer, but not at the hand of the designer. So I think it's a great metaphor as long as we don't make the lawnmower out to be God. He's the builder of the laws of nature and moral laws, but he is not the enforcer of the breaches. They're inherent. So the hellfire that happens at the end is is what? <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite... 
one of my favorite questions. Okay. Do, should, should I do it, guys? Okay. All right. So let's, let's answer the question. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14. says, The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Verse 15. He who walks righteously and keeps his hands away from murder, bribe, and extortion spend eternity in the fire, not the wicked. And that got me thinking when I read that. It was very confusing initially because I came from a different paradigm than the one I'm at now. And so I went back to my scripture and I went through the scriptures from the beginning to the end. And I found that when Moses talked to God at the bush, the bush burned, but it did not get consumed. When God came down to Sinai and talked to the people, it was described as having a consuming fire, but the mountain did not melt. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, the priest couldn't enter because of the fiery glory, but the building did not burn down. Ezekiel chapter 28 says that Lucifer used to walk among the fiery stones of God's presence. Daniel chapter 7 says the Ancient of Days takes his seed and rivers of fire come out before him and thousands and thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand stand in this fire. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. Revelation 22 2 says there's no need for heaven and the earth to light the place because God's presence will be its light. And the lie that Satan has infected our minds with is the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is a place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence where the righteous are transformed by this life-giving glory, but the wicked run in terror and are consumed by it. Moses coming down off the mountain, his 40 days of God's presence, his face is radiating a light, a fire. Did he have third-degree burns? Did his whiskers even get burned? No. But what did the people do when they saw this fire? They, were, they suffered. It actually caused them agony of mind, psyche, uh, guilty conscience. They couldn't tolerate the light. They begged him to put a veil on it. It was causing suffering in them, but it wasn't harmful to Moses. This is a very strange fire. Fire that, that doesn't burn whiskers, doesn't burn buildings, doesn't give third-degree burns to Moses, um, doesn't burn up bushes. Yet it says that the wicked will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Somehow the wicked are somehow tormented and, and caused pain in this fire. As Nadab and Abihu, when they took an unauthorized fire before the Lord, it says fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then the next verse, Moses sent in the cousins, and he drags them out still in their tunics. Now if I hit you with a flamethrower until you die, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? <laughs> So this, this fire that we have, this imagery we have of Scripture, we think in our human mindset of combustion, molecules giving up their energy in oxidation. That's not what's happening. There's something else going on. Because this fire is not to consume molecules primarily. That's not what it's about. It's to consume sin. And we already talked earlier in the class today, at its root, sin has two elements, lies and selfishness. Lies are consumed by truth. Selfishness is consumed by love. That's at Pentecost when the spirit of truth and love fell. They saw tongues of fire, but no one got burned. Thus it says in the third angel's message that, that they will be the, uh, the fire, uh, uh, brim, fire and brimstone. The word brimstone is the Greek word theon, which is the neuter form of theos, which we get theology from, which means God. It's divine fire. It's, it's, hol- it's holy fire. And how do we know that's what it is? Because it says right in the text. Read it. They will be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. That's where it takes place. And what is the source of the torment then? Is it an infliction? No. It's unremedied sin in the character. See, Paul talks about people piling up wrath for the day of wrath. That's what he talks about. Pile up wrath for the day. How does this work? I have patients who have been molested. And when we work on that, they eventually will come, especially with someone they knew, like a grandfather, an uncle, a dad, or somebody that did it. They will often say, I just wish they would admit what they did. I just wish they'd acknowledge it. 
And I said, let's take that at face value. Here today, right now, if the person genuinely, fully, and completely acknowledges what they did, won't there be a period of shame, guilt, self-loathing, self-disgust that they will have to wrestle through? And, And today, it would still be under the umbrellas of God's grace where they could find healing, forgiveness, transformation, regeneration of heart, a new heart and right spirit. All that could still be, but it would still be an agonizing time for them. What will it be like on that day when they come face to face with the source of all truth and love and their lies about themselves, their distortions, because this is how people don't feel guilt, is they lie, they distort, they, they, they warp their own thinking so they're not, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. See? And so what will it be like though when they come to the face to face with all truth and their lies don't work and they have full awareness of who they are, what they've done, and on top of that, they get the awareness of the level of pain they've caused others. Do you think there'll be a gnashing and teeth and a weeping? There'll be an agonizing and a suffering? Now, is this an infliction externally put upon them? Or is this what unremedied sin does in the character when they're face-to-face with God? So in the light of what you just said, what about the flood? What about Uzzah? What about Korodath and Byron? Yep. All of those things are 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 those individuals who, I will say, use the Bible term, the Jesus term, sleep in the grave gone from existence or are they coming back to life which was the bible say they're coming back to life this was not punishment for sin because the punishment for sin is what eternal non-existence being separated from god your source of life for all eternity with no connection and you have no life this has not happened yet so then in the old but many people confuse this and they look at the old testament and they think god is punishing sin no 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 look at that larger landscape after adam sinned was it possible for humanity to be reconciled and saved without Jesus? No. Absolutely not. I want to be very... We could not be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you think Satan understood that after Genesis 3 where God speaks to him and says, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel? Do you think Satan knew a Messiah was coming? Do you think he kicked back in his lounge chair for 4,000 years and just waited for him to arrive? Or did he get to work trying to oppose and stop it if he could? And there is a stratagem that if Satan would have succeeded, would have actually stopped this plan of salvation. What's that stratagem? If every human being on earth shuts God out completely and hardens their heart against him, there's not one human being left whom God can work with. Will God have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel? No. No. Well, what does the earth say at the time of the flood? How many righteous men were left on the earth? Think about the avenue through which God has to work. There's only one righteous man in the whole earth willing to work with God still. The avenue had gotten so narrow that if God doesn't act, he's going to lose the entire race. So God puts them to sleep. He'll wake them up later. But he's put them to sleep to keep open the avenue. And the metaphor I use, imagine that you have ten children. Five of them are very, very wicked. Wild, like, like the Genesis 6, violent and violent all the time. They're abusing, they're drug addicts, they're molesters. I mean, they're just horrible people. And, you have, and they're all over the age of 20. They're your kids over the age of 20. But you also have five, and this is God's position, right? They're his kids, all right? You also have five kids that are under the age of 10. And your five older kids are coming to abuse and molest and, uh, uh, your younger kids. You try to intervene, but they won't even listen to you. If you had the ability to hit them with something that would put them in cryogenic storage, wouldn't kill them, but just freeze them in time. 
time, time warp, what a time, a, a, a time dilation device, whatever you want to call it. They're just frozen in time. Long enough for your kids to grow up safe, and then you just thaw them out or, or take off the time dilation field and let them continue. The, would you do it to protect your... This is what God did. He only suspended them in time. They come up out of the grave with the exact current of thoughts they went in the grave. For them, there is no breach of time. It's instant. So God is acting. And all these things in the Old Testament are not judgments and punishments. They're therapeutic interventions. A doctor will cauterize a lesion. He cauterized Sodom and Gomorrah. Same type thing. They're sleeping, they'll come up. But he cauterized because look at, look at how close Israel came to being totally corrupted to the point there was no one left for Messiah. Without Sodom and Gomorrah in the five cities. How close they were almost corrupted to the point. God cauterized the minimum necessary to get them through to the Messiah. He took out seven cities. I think, if he didn't do it, that their influence would have been enough that the, that the children of Israel don't make it through to the Messiah. I think that's why he did it. But they're coming up too. They're coming up too to finish their, their days. And people say, well, yeah, but still, it was still judgment because, because he's, he's finished their choice and they have no chance... Well, this is why the, the resurrection after the thousand years. The resurrection after the thousand years. To read your inspiration about that. What happens in the thousand years? The new Jerusalem comes down. The, the righteous are there. The wicked are raised. A period of time goes by, Scripture says, where they're building implements of war. The gates of the new Jerusalem are open the whole time. And only when they march in mass to attack it does the voice of Christ come and say, close the gates. Think the implication. Think the implication. The New Jerusalem, Christ, and the saints are on earth, inside the New Jerusalem, and the gates are open the entire time. What, what, why? What, what, what's the point? For people in that other view who are saying God, God made their decision, he didn't give them a chance. They will have a be- they will, as far as evidence goes, they will have more evidence than anyone in history, and they will still reject it. To demonstrate that when God put them to sleep in Old Testament times, he did not determine the outcome of their life. They determine it by their own choices. It's huge. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yes. You know, that, this uh, philosophy is not new. <laughs> it was so well recorded in the book Desire of Ages, um, chapter It Is Finished, referring to those who were, have died. It says, God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal these, their principles. This accomplished, they receive the result of their own choice by life of rebellion. Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of God, who is love, will destroy them. Yes, and so, yes, and then, and then my view is after that period of time, when the glory comes and they're consumed, I need happen to buy you, but their clothes aren't burned, then there comes a fire that Peter talks about where the elements melt in the fervent heat then the whole earth is renewed and recreated as God originally intended. But when in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which the, the sacrificial animal represents him who was made sin, who knew no sin, when did they ever burn an animal alive? Why do we have this insistence that God is going to torture people in fires of combustion, performing miracles? You think about it. Think about it. If, if a nuclear bomb went off in this room, how long would we suffer? We wouldn't even know what happened. We'd be vaporized. God's power has to be stronger than the molecules he made. And how is it some teach that God will have people in the fire for days when you believe those beings are mortal and not immortal? 
unless you believe God is using his power to perform a miracle in order to torture them. And there are many in our church who teach that idea. The only way to bring harmony to all the passages is understanding that the fire that causes the torment is the fire of love and truth burning through the lies and distortion. And the torment is a torment of unremedied sin and the character of the, of the sinful. It's not an infliction. And I see God weeping and crying as his children are suffering in, in those flames of truth and love. Yes? Do you feel that those that sin the most will burn the longest? Yes, and my reason for that is because... Every time we sin and don't repent, the way we avoid guilt is by denial and distortion. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. So there's a lie I tell myself, and I distort and warp my mind. And then I sin again, another lie, and another warp, and another lie, and another warp, and another lie, and another warp. And the more we do, the more lies we tell ourselves, so there's more lies for the truth to burn through. These will burn through Right, and the truth burns through the lies. It's not a physical burning. But remember Paul says, it's also the burning, the more wicked you are, the more awful you feel when you're con- confronted with, with goodness. So you remember Paul says, if those do you wrong, do good to them, and you will heap burning coals on their head. It's not fire, it's physical combustion you're heaping on their head. It causes them burning. Inside. Or, or when truth came to the men to, on the road to Emmaus, our hearts burned within us as the truth was revealed. Truth and love burn out lies and selfishness. And so those who have lied the most and have the most history of selfish behavior have the greatest database, if you will, for the truth and love to burn through. It takes longer. Yeah. It's not punishment. No, it's the condition itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an infliction. Now let's go on. Uh, it says... Yes. If I were living then and I was drowning, but my final destination is sealed, isn't it? I mean, when the Jews... Sealed by whom? Sealed by whom? What, what seals each person's final destination? My conduct. Our willingness and ability to respond to truth and love. But you don't imply, it seems to, that you imply with the gates open that I have an opportunity to change my position. You certainly do. You absolutely do. The opportunity for, for going into the gate are not restricted by God. They're restricted by your unwillingness to go in the gate. Your opportunity is only lost because your character is unwilling to do it, but God has not just shut down the opportunity. Just as it was with the ark. Just as it was. You know, well, the, you know, the ark, actually, God closed the ark. There was opportunity lost there. Um, well, and God closes the east when, the gate. When they, march, when they march in mass to attack the city, in mass. But, but the point is the same. Correlation's the same. Any, any point, they could have walked in that ark. Yes. Yes, sure. They could have yes. walked in, and they chose not. Yes. And, wh- and, and, and if you have a hard time understanding why they won't, you remember David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Yeah. Remember, imagine you had a loved one inside the, the compound in Waco. And you go down when the FBI has got the place surrounded. And, and your loved one is inside the Waco compound calling out to you with a sign, hey, this is the, this is the true message. Come on in. Come on in. Are you going into that compound? No. That's how they will see us inside the city. They will be so convinced that we are deluded that no matter what we say and what we do and no matter what ha- signs we hang over the wall to our loved ones on the outside, they're not coming in. They're so settled into the lie. The ceiling, so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, you can't be moved, and so settled into the lie that you can't be moved. Okay, am I understanding you correct? 
when the gates are open in the New Jerusalem, until they're closed again, I have a second chance. Who is it that determines your willingness to, or ability to, ability to go through that gate? God or you? I you, thought when I die, yeah, that's because it, it is finished. That's what everyone thinks because they put it on God the onus, that God is deciding their eternal destiny. But what you're telling us today is that with the fact that the gates are open and I'm a sinner outside the gate, I'm not inside. That's correct. That I have an opportunity to be saved again if I change. No, you don't. No, you don't have an opportunity. Your opportunity is gone. Because of your own condition, not because of God's restriction. That's the point of the, of the, uh, of the gates. When you ha- operate under the model that God's restriction or closing the gates or deter- shuts down my opportunity, then having the gates open makes one believe, ah, I've still got an opportunity. But when you understand your loss of opportunity is when your heart is so hardened that no amount of truth and no amount of love will have any impact on you. Then your opportunity is gone. This is the unpardonable sin. Not because God was unwilling to forgive, but because we're unwilling to respond. And so those who come up in the resurrection of the unrighteous will not respond to the evidence before them. They will still be lost, but but the demonstration reveals it's not because God determined their decisions for them. They still exercise their own individuality of their own hardened hearts and rejected all the evidences. God would have loved for them to repent, but they won't do it. His heart is still for them. He still loves them. Imagine one of your own children out there. You would love for them to repent, but they won't. And this is the, this is the purpose of this demonstration, because many will accuse God, well, if, you didn't, if you didn't put them in the grave, if you would have done the flood, if you would have done Sodom, if you would given them more time on earth, you shut their probation down. You didn't give them a fair chance. They will actually come up with the same current of thoughts they went in the grave to finish those days. I've got to go on with, with some other points here. Just several big points in the lesson. Man. We're, we only have four minutes left in class now. Mm. Oh, there's a trouble with a public forum. No, 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 no. This was great discussion. I'm glad we had it. But there's a couple. It was a really great discussion. Please, please keep asking. This has made the class great today. It's just that there's other things I wanted to kind of share too, and I have a passion to share those things too. Um, but, yeah, they're in the notes. My notes are on- available online. Um, so. I'm going to have to skip this quotation. There's a quotation from Signs of the Times, uh, January 20, 1890, which basically talks about Satan distorting God's law and character. And, and I'll give you the final sentence here. It says, The only way in which God could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. Amen. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became partaker of his nature. Set men right is called justification. Keep men right is sanctification. The only way to do that is to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. He had to dispel the lies because lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Truth dispels lies and wins us back to trust. We open the heart to trust. The spirit comes, take all that Christ has has achieved and reproduces it in us. Transformational. But only it's all based on trust. Another word for trust is faith. And it's established upon the evidence of God's character revealing Christ. So, um, there's more in the notes. We're going to skip that. Um, so, Paul in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. I've got the NIV in here. You can read that on your own. I was going to read it and then compare it, but I'm just going to go ahead and read my paraphrase of this. 
But now God has revealed a healthy state of being, a character that is right and perfect in every way, that did not come from the written code, but is exactly what the scriptures and the Ten Commandments were pointing your minds toward. This perfect state of being comes from Christ and is created within us by God when we trust him. Our trust is in him, excuse me, our trust in him is established by the evidence given through Jesus Christ of his supreme trustworthiness. There is no difference among any ethnic group for all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness and are deformed in character and fall far short of God's glorious ideal for mankind. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy that has been provided by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Now, through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate he is right and good because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequences of being out of harmony with how he designed life to exist and has been falsely accused of being unfair. So he did it to demonstrate how right and good he is at the present time so that he would be seen as being right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. Any comments, questions, thoughts? It's not complex when you get back and build your foundation on God the designer, God the creator, God's law of love and expression of his character, the protocols upon which life are constructed to operate, and sin, transgression of the law, is deviant from that design and it's terminal. We are dead in trespass and sin. And the, the original fire you were talking at the top can be also thought of more as a refiner's fire versus a consuming fire. That's right. And that's what it says in Malachi. He becomes as a refiner's fire or launderer's soap to refine the Levites, which is exactly the same um, event as Daniel 8, 14. 2300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. Same event. Malachi 3, cleansing the Levites. Boy, that's a whole other subject, isn't it? I love that one, too. There's a couple other really nice quotes in here. One's uh, from Signs of the Times, July 23, 1902, about God's omnipotent, omniscient, and immutable law, and about how, and I've got some some of my red comments and parenthetical portions throughout that quotation uh, that I think you'll find helpful. Um, But let me, this is, those who believe on Christ and obey his commandments are are not under bondage to God's law. For those who believe and obey, his law is not a law of bondage, but of liberty. Let me explain that really quickly. What does it mean to be under the bondage of God's law? If you break the law, the design protocols for life, you come under bondage. If you decide to break the laws of health and you smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and you develop COPD, do you have as much freedom or have you lost freedoms? Are you under bondage? You can't walk. You can't climb stairs. You can't ski at altitude. You might even be tied down to an auction machine. If you do a drug called MDMA and it's not made right, it will cause it damage the dopamine-producing cells in your brain and cause Parkinson's-like disorder. Now you can't move. You're actually in bondage. Um, this is what happens when you do this. So... Well, those, what is it that actually restricts the liberty? Which restricts one's liberty more completely and without compromise? A jail cell, a legal condemnation, or the inability to move because one has destroyed their lungs or has Parkinson-like disorder? Which is more bondage for you? You see? Um, that's, so penal models of atonement undermine the law of God by representing it as human law and suggesting what holds us in bondage is legal condemnation and a law enforcement angel from heaven. That's what holds us in bondage. It's not. It's our own condition, our own carnal nature, our own deviant from God's design. We're in bondage to, 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 to those issues, and Christ came to set us free, to give us a new heart and right spirit. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you so much that you are a God of love. You're our creator, our builder, designer, who who've built us to operate in harmony with your perfect nature of love. We have been so confused. So many misconceptions have entered our minds. We pray that your spirit will come. Allow us to comprehend and experience the truth as you've revealed it to us and brought it to us in Jesus. That we can come back into a unity of oneness, of of love, of fellowship, and, and empower us, Lord, to be able to effectively communicate this to the world about us, that the church can be wakened out of its lethargy and that we can, can be empowered by the pouring of, the, of your spirit to, to, to lighten the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.